Okay, Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast, a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Today on the pod, we've got Gary Hefferly of Fresh from the Farm Fungi, an exotic mushroom cultivation and education outfit based out of Denver, Colorado. Gary and his wife, Addie, run the business out of their home and have mastered the art of cultivating dozens of different rare and exotic fungi, including Cordyceps militaris, the history and benefits of which we will touch upon today, also lion's mane, bear's head, chestnut, peopini, shiitake, and over a dozen more varieties, including, of course, your favorite oyster mushrooms. Gary's gonna drop knowledge on innovations in the mushroom cultivation industry, and we're also gonna learn about his current experiments cultivating wild mushrooms that have thus far largely eluded the grasp of commercial cultivation. We are also diving into NASA opportunities for the hemp industry and the mushroom industry to link up and double down on closing the environmental loop together. Gary was a full-fledged member of the corporatocracy, working in a lab environment for a number of years before fully dedicating himself to the micropreneurial venture that is fresh from the farm fungi. And so we're also gonna dive into the how, the why, and the when of fully committing oneself to being a micropreneur. Spoiler alert, it's working out very well for Gary and Addy. And we're gonna get down to the granularities of all that right now. So let's get the show on the road. Que pasa Mufasa. Welcome Gary Hefferly of Fresh from the Farm Fungi to the Micropreneur Podcast. Hey, greetings from Denver. So I saw that you recently had a Fresh from the Farm Fungi booth at the NOCO Hemp Expo in Denver. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the highlights from the show and maybe drop some knowledge on opportunities for collaboration between the hemp industry and mushroom cultivators slash micropreneurs like yourself? Yeah, yeah. So um, actually my friend Zach was uh, running the booth with me from Mushroom Cult. And he was the one who recommended reaching out to you. So it was a really cool event in Denver. Um, it was probably, you know, the largest at the event that we attended since the whole COVID thing happened. So it was a little overwhelming at first. Um, you know, there was a lot of a lot of people, a lot of vendors, but it was a great place to do some networking. You know, one of uh, my my main goals of going there was to close the end on the hemp industry to close the loop. So one of the main, you know, problems that I see as a consumer in, you know, the hemp world is that a lot of their waste product is just thrown out and, you know, it goes right into the landfill. And as a mushroom cultivator, I see that as, you know, just a, a reserves, a gold mine of substrate. So one of my missions there was just, you know, to uh, link up some of these larger hemp farms with um, one of the people who I work with, which is the um, Mushroom Media, like the owner Seth there, he, he uh, distributes pellets all over the country. So I thought it would be cool to link up one of these hemp farms with this guy who produces pellets and they could produce hemp pellets and then I could grow my mushrooms on them. So that was, you know, one of my main missions, but throughout the course of the weekend, I met so many cool vendors, so many, you know, people that are interested in mushrooms and it really made me appreciate, you know, the growing industry that we're a part of and just all the potential that there is to, you know, continue bringing mushrooms to the, to the community. So that was kind of um, the highlight of my weekend and it was just 
talking for like 48 hours straight, like my throat hurt after, but um, I got to meet a lot of really cool people. And um, I hope that, you know, the mushroom and hemp relationship continues after that. I'm going to be doing some test runs. I actually just started this week um, spawning some different hemp products. So there's a couple of companies that they had these huge bales of hemp that they didn't really know what to do with. So at the very end, Zach and I, we snatched up some of those hemp bales and now we're trying to grow mushrooms on it. One of the coolest things about doing this podcast is getting the inside track on some of these nascent opportunities and pinning developments occurring in the world of mushrooms because so many people are examining different challenges and opportunities through their own unique lenses. That's the beauty of mycopreneurism to me. Here's this extraordinary and abundant natural material that can occupy and replace and buttress so many different niches of individual and community level systems and beyond. And the power of the human network and collective brain trust that's invested in working with fungi undesigning and redesigning the world as we know it, it magnifies and it accelerates and it grows more resilient and durable and audacious. The more brain power that's invested in this mycelial network. I've never considered using hemp as a substrate for cultivating mushrooms. I'm certainly not a master cultivator by any stretch. And I've heard of using coffee grounds as another example of closing the loop, as you say. But once this idea is proposed, it seems obvious and that the hemp industry and the mushroom industry should be working together in symbiosis to amplify each other's workflows and to minimize extemporaneous byproduct. On this podcast, we've been covering a lot of ground regarding the many innovative ways that different people are working with mushrooms from investing in the mental health of US military veterans with psychedelic mushroom therapy to achieving food equity and marginalized communities, to mycofiltration and filtering groundwater with oyster mushrooms, neurocognitive benefits of lion's mane for people with Alzheimer's, et cetera, et cetera. Did you come across anyone at the NOCO Expo that's utilizing mushrooms and mushroom technology in a particularly interesting way that maybe you hadn't considered before? Yeah, so being a part of this industry, there's a million directions you can go and that's one of the challenges as a cultivator to just stay focused which I kind of stray away from just cultivating a lot but I think it's fun but one of the coolest things that I saw at the expo was there was a um, a woman that she was producing like CBD capsules but her her uh, material that she packaged it in was made out of mushroom mycelium. So that was the first time in real life when I saw, wow, this person had a product. It was like a health-related product. And the packaging itself was made out of mushrooms. And, you know, I think there's so much potential to expand on that. I don't know, like, the cost that went into producing that product, but I've heard it talked about, you know, for years and years now, and then actually seeing it in person you know, was really cool. And yeah, I would say like that was the highlight, one of the highlights. There's also, you know, a lot of these products that they just want to blend the mushroom as like a nutraceutical and being, you know, at a hemp expo, there was a lot of CBD products, a lot of just uh, therapeutic products that were out there. And a lot of people were interested in blending, you know, the mushrooms into those just for the health benefits that a lot of these uh, just regular mushroom, I would say like a, a, a nutraceutical. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, opportunity for partnerships to be made and both industries are expanding rapidly. And one of the coolest things about the innovation in the hemp industry is that 
it kind of started a little bit before the mushrooms. So all of the prices of these like pieces of equipment, like extraction machines, even just a lot of the cultivation equipment has come down a lot. So uh, people like me who, you know, I'm just running this business, but it's me and my wife and we don't have that much capital or resources, but with the price of all those goods coming down, it allows us to innovate a lot more rapidly than maybe 20 or 30 years ago when if you wanted to you know, buy an extraction machine, it would have been $50,000. And now you can get used ones for significantly cheaper. So I see like the potential of where things are going. And the hemp industry has brought the price of those goods down. And it allowed, you know, the the opportunities for partnerships. And like I said, early on is, um, I think the biggest, you know, thing that could come out of it is getting like healthy substrates to grow mushrooms and that's ultimately going to help out all the mushroom farmers out there so i think that overall you know it's really promising and it was a good experience and um as far as innovation goes it's just like mind-blowing how many ideas are coming out of this realm it's truly mind-blowing to see the rapid development and the innovation and disruption that's happening throughout the world when one starts to tune into these different avenues for using mushrooms and mycelium as a starting point for regenerative design, not only at the granular materials level, like how packaging and paper and such can be made out of mycelium-based biocomposites, but also at the level of social systems and community. We recently had Josephine Nakakandi of EcoAgric Uganda on the program, and she's trained and is actively supporting over 400 women mushroom farmers in Uganda, people who prior to this training were living on less than $1 a day and who had absolutely nothing. They now have abundant, nutritious oyster mushrooms to eat and to sell, which has enabled them to drastically improve their livelihoods and the situations in their communities. And and what resonates here with what you're saying is that Josephine mentioned how the oyster mushrooms these women grow are cultivated on substrates of agricultural waste in the form of corn husks primarily, which is something that the communities in Uganda actually have in most cases, access to corn and corn husks. And instead of throwing away these husks, they're able to cultivate and to scale their oyster mushroom business using this formerly essentially valueless byproduct of agriculture, they're able to close the loop on that process and, and to empower entire communities with the rising tide of mushroom cultivation and micropreneurship. I was looking at the Fresh from the Farm Fungi online store and I noticed something that caught my eye. You offer several types of wild foraged fungi, including chanterelle, lobster mushrooms, which are both personal favorites of mine, and the latter of which I've found in abundance in the indigenous markets of Mexico during the rainy season. You've also got morels and porcini mushrooms. And there's a quote above this selection of mushrooms that says, we don't cultivate these, dot, 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 yet. Now, it's my understanding that the reason these mushrooms are currently only available in the wild foraged format is because they require specific ecosystem and tree types, root networks, etc and that cultivating them would be largely untenable due to their unique environmental needs. Have you found a hack around this that you can share with us? Yeah, yeah, so a big part of my YouTube channel right now is um, cultivating some of these, you know, fringe mushrooms, I like to say. So starting out, we can kind of break it down. 
the the more cello species, the morale mushrooms. I was really inspired by Trad Cotter. He gave a presentation at the Telluride Mushroom Festival a couple of years back, and he showed you know, as kind of like a teaser, some snapshots of uh, these morale farms in China. And that was, I, I think it was 2018. So they had just started doing this. And I know that um, there's a gentleman in Iowa, Blue's Best Mushrooms, and they are commercially cultivating the morale mushrooms. So they've been successful for a couple years now, which is, you know, a lot of people just considered it impossible or very unsustainable so I'm working on, you know, just a methodology or, you know, my expertise might be just in finding and breeding the right species. So, you know, morale mushrooms as an ascomycete, they're very um, polymorphic in nature. So they're not like a saprobe, like an oyster mushroom where they're only eating the decaying wood. But I believe that, you know, they, they bounce around from a saprophytic behavior to uh, ectomycorrhizal behavior with the with the grass roots, and they have a special part of their life cycle that a lot of the saprobes don't have, being an ascomycete, and they produce canidia, which is like a intermediate stage between a fruiting body and the expanding mycelium. So um, there's you know a few key points when you're cultivating morel mushrooms. And one of them is the canidia production. The other interesting factor is that they don't like to be spawned heavily, like let's say a kingstropharia. They like a central point, which the blues best, they sell kits, which kind of emulate this. But I'm just kind of working on scaling it up to um, you know the climate of Colorado, which is super dry. But essentially, you take the spawn, you keep it inside of a bag and then you poke holes in the bag so that the mycelium can go out and explore. And that way it has like the centralized packets of nutrients. And then once it hits like a perimeter around that bag, it will tend to fruit. So, you know, that is, um, I would say it's in the past five or six years that they figured that out. So I don't want to take credit for that, but I'm just expanding on it and, you know, just trying to broadcast that so that like how Zach said, all these other people can put their minds behind it and improve that process because I love morale mushrooms. And if everyone's growing them, you know, that's going to be great for the world. <laughs> um, moving on from morale mushrooms, I'm also working on porcini, which there's a couple papers that are coming out of France. Um, if you, if you look back on my YouTube videos they incorporate this really cool plant i actually have one right behind me it's called it's a rock rose plant and it's called a cystus ladanifer so these plants are super cool because they pop up after forest fires so they're one of you know the fastest um, organisms to kind of refurbish a forest and one of the neat features because of that is that they can harbor tons and tons of different microorganisms in their roots because I think of it as like, you know, an insurance policy for the forest. So it's harboring all these different various fungi and that allows it to be more ectomycorrhizal than, you know, the traditional hemlock trees or other conifers that you would see porcinis grow. So um, I don't know if it would work with, with um, chanterelle, and it's very fringe 
as far as, you know, the success goes right now. But I think the power and the key is in a plant like this that has these really unique features that allow for fungi to adapt to the plant and stress environments. And um, one, of the, one of the projects that I just did was trying to grow this in tandem with porcini inside of a tote. But I figured out that they like um, the lower humidity that is, you know, generally after a forest fire or just being in nature in general. So, you know, they, they didn't withstand some of the normal molds like um, botrytis or I think it was, you know, probably a powdery mildew or something that ended up killing this. But I'm going to be expanding that into raised beds. And then also I have a piece of my property along a fence that I'm going to try to expand it even farther just to scale up, you know, the experiment. The coolest thing about, you know, doing these kind of videos on YouTube and having a YouTube channel is the community that it creates. So after I released that video, I got this email from some guy in Germany and he sent me all these photos of like his porcini experiment. And he had like little baby pins and one of his pots actually had a porcini mushroom. So to me, that was very exciting. You know, I got a response from someone. The translation wasn't that good, but basically he told me that my pot wasn't deep enough. So that's something that I'm going to consider, you know, with the next round. But um, that being said, I think that if it can grow in nature, you can replicate it in the lab. There's some really complex relationships that are happening, but the more and more I'm working with these mushrooms, the more I understand the importance of the scale of everything. So in a healthy forest, you know, there's not going to be this tiny little microclimate of, you know, perfect CO2 and perfect humidity. And maybe the the swings are, you know, consistent, but to a, a person like me, like I wouldn't even notice that. So I think that, you know, the more and more I work with them, the more I appreciate the healthy forest that they come from. And the more that I feel like an earning to protect those regions, um, just in case we can't figure it out before it's too late. That's kind of, you know, the, the direction that I'm going now is I'm just making experiments, filming them and letting the world see what's happening so that they can provide their input and then we can move the needle a little bit farther. And, you know, I think that it's possible to cultivate porcini, probably chanterelle too. It's just going to take time and effort and there's not much funding in, you know, in the mycology world, but just by filming it, and shooting it out into the world, I think that you can maximize every single ounce of energy that's going into these little experiments. So that's kind of, you know, um, that's kind of the projects that I'm working on. Let's talk about cordyceps mushrooms for a minute. Cordies, cordies. So I understand that you've been cultivating cordyceps militaris, the little orange stringy fellas that fruit upwards and that are extremely in vogue among cultivators and consumers these days. Uh, it's only been a few years that home cultivators have been able to grow them thanks to some recent breakthroughs. Let's draw some comparisons between Cordyceps militaris, which is the one that's often cultivated, at least in the United States, and is available for commercial consumption, and the fabled Cordyceps sinensis, which for those unfamiliar, literally grow out of caterpillars' heads and which fetch upwards of $10,000 a pound. I've even heard of them being sold for as much as $140,000 US dollars a pound for the highest quality specimens 
These Cordyceps sinensis are localized in extremely high altitudes in remote southern China, Tibet, and Bhutan. Now, in both cases of the Cordyceps sinensis and Militaris, the benefits that are widely touted are the energetic boost, the enhanced libido, hey, 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 and all kinds of other health benefits that are prized by different people and cultures worldwide. So, you list your Cordyceps Militaris for $75 per half ounce, for freshly preserved whole fruiting body mushrooms, which by my calculations equates to $2,400 a pound for your cordyceps. In your estimation, is there anything other than social status and fetishization and commodification that accounts for the $7,500 a pound minimum price difference between home cultivated cordyceps militaris and wild foraged cordyceps sinensis? Yeah, so um, I am familiar with uh, the Cordyceps sinensis. I've never seen one in real life, though. Um, but the beautiful part about Cordyceps militaris is that you can cultivate them. So Cordyceps sinensis, as far as I know, um, it hasn't been cultivated yet. I mean, I'm still a believer that it can happen, but it's a it's a much more sensitive mushroom and just working with cordyceps you know they're very sensitive and finicky even in cultivation so i've been working on this project for about two years now i study william padilla brown a lot and um, his colleagues and some of the other breeders out there like terrestrial fungi so they've made huge strides in the cordyceps cultivation world so one of the reasons for me personally, why I priced my mushrooms where they are is because of the difficulty of cultivation. So, you know, it took a huge project to gather, you know, a small amount of the cordyceps that I was growing. So that's kind of where the price point came in. But also there's studies that show that the cultivated cordyceps have um, just as much cordycepin, which is the that's like the the active molecule in cordyceps which i mean there's you can go into hours and hours of information about that i actually did a podcast type interview like this with um my friend tyler from off-grid apothecary and you know it was an hour long of different studies of cordyceps and how like the health benefits of them but it's really cool that there's you know this cultivatable version of cordyceps and then the cordyceps sinensis, which I believe in the power of cordyceps. And I'm lucky because now I can eat them every day. It's not an overwhelming cost for me, but my dream is to bring that price down as, as a business owner and just really dial in my production. That's kind of, you know, a, a late and up and coming industry as well. So during the course of the two years that I've been trying to grow cordyceps and, you know, it, I would say 90% of my batches were just either tiny little mushrooms or they got overgrown or um, my, you know, my biggest uh, observation is the temperature aspect. Like most, most mushrooms can handle, you know, 10 or 12 degrees in, in temperature fluctuations, but the cordyceps is so sensitive that if you have one day where, you know, I bump my thermostat and the temperature goes up four degrees, that's going to freeze all those pins and they won't produce. So that's my tip to everyone out there is like the cordyceps are very sensitive to temperature. And that's kind of where a lot of the cost goes in is to just maintaining a super perfect temperature for the environment. 
Um, but if you can figure out how to how to reduce those costs, maybe you know you only do it certain points of the year when they're ideal to to cultivate in your area. Um, that could help you know bring that price down and give everyone um, the ability to experience this awesome medicine. Like I I just make teas with it probably you know once or twice a week, and I just feel a really long sustained energy and I can't even tell you like how many how many benefits come from cordyceps I'll just sound like some crazy person but you can go watch watch um the video with Tyler and check out William Padilla Brown's uh book on cultivating cordyceps and then there's a lot of cool research coming out with that yeah that kind of explains you know the shocking price like a lot of people are like whoa why are these so much money and honestly it's uh it, it should be less but i have to stay in business so totally understand and i'm happy to pay a premium for excellent high quality mushrooms that are grown by a real human where i know the grower and i'm able to personally share in some of the behind the scenes story and the workflow i recently purchased a bag of cordyceps militaris powder from an herbal apothecary type store here in Mexico, and it was like 100 pesos or $5 for a bag full of this powder. And I'm thinking, it's probably sourced from a bulk grower somewhere overseas and then diluted, and these highly touted benefits we're discussing that command such a high price point, they seem to potentially be absent from this mystery cordyceps powder. So it's not really doing anyone any good other than the bottom lines of the company producing it. That's an unscrupulous business practice, as far as I can tell, that I think widely exists with large and anonymous growers and the whole order and bulk supplement on Amazon business ethos. One I can't support in good conscience. So the moral of the story, the morale of the story, folks, is know your grower or even better, grow yourself, cultivate it yourself. Go to one of Gary and Zach's classes that we'll talk about in a sec. Both of these, both knowing your growers and growing yourself are infinitely superior models to the standard big anonymous bulk purchase supply chain in my point of view. So Gary, we've had your business partner, Zach Kaiser of Mushroom Colt as a recent guest, and he's the one who introduced us. Can you tell us a little bit about your friendship with Zach and what kind of symbiosis fresh from the farm fungi and Mushroom Colt enjoy? Yeah, yeah, so um, Zach's one of my good friends. We met a few years back. I just gave this random talk about um, the health benefits of mushrooms. So. It was probably, you know, three years ago now at, at the co-op where I sell some of my fresh mushrooms. Um, they have an event center there and, you know, it had an open day. So I'm like, I've always struggled with public speaking. So it was kind of on me to, you know, practice uh, just talking publicly. So, you know, I made this thing. I was super nervous about it. And lo and behold, Zach and his wife are the only two people in the audience. So it made it, um, you know, very easy for me to give this presentation. And then afterwards, he stuck around for a while. We talked about mushroom cultivation and there's this old stump behind the store. So I explained, you know, maybe we can drill some holes in this stump and get some mushrooms. And a couple months after that, he had reached out to me. I knew that he was teaching um, classes, like cultivation classes at the Colorado Free University, which it's kind of like this nonprofit, like uh, classroom setting on campus. And we kind of joined forces at that point because I, I'm not horribly comfortable with public speaking and he's a really good speaker. 
I kind of offered, you know, some, I guess, just organization aspects behind creating a class. So we just, uh, we both built off of what we knew and it's been a really great partnership since then. So prior to COVID, we were having classes with 25, 30 people, um, students in one class, and that was super fun. And then all that came to an end because our event space had to shut down. So, you know, instead of throwing in the towel, we started innovating and we ended up teaching some classes at um, one of my properties in Castle Rock, which is, you know, 40 minutes south of Denver. And we started getting people that would come and we're like, wow, there's, I mean, this means a lot if during this pandemic, you know, safely, of course, we were we were having people driving from all over. And then one day we got this gentleman that came in from Utah and this girl that came in from Texas. And we're like, wow, this is so cool that people are so dedicated to learn about mushrooms that they're coming from all over. So then recently, Zach, he, he bought a new house. So he dedicated literally like, you know, this section of his house and we turned it into a classroom. And that's what we've been doing since then. And we might even be, you know, outgrowing that soon. We're looking at, you know, some other properties that might be able to be more classroom friendly, but it's been such a a wonderful experience meeting all these different people. You know, recently someone from England flew all the way over to take our class and, you know, that meant so much to us. And this guy is so cool. He was super hyped up and it seems like, once or twice a month, whenever we're giving these classes, it just, it gives me like a boost of energy just to be around these people and teach about mushrooms. And we learn just as much as we teach. So it's just like this symbiotic relationship with the mushroom community and just, you know, having Zach there to, you know, bounce ideas off each other. And um, it's been, you know, a really wonderful relationship. And I foresee, you know, We've, we started doing some online classes, which is more just like, like Zoom meetings and it goes off on like all these crazy rabbit holes, but maybe one one day we'll, we'll do some kind of an online, more structured class. But for now, it's just like getting thrust into the moment and, and learning um, and, you know, teaching all these different types of people. And I, f- I feel like it's it's brought a lot of value to me. I know Zach would probably say the same and for the people that are leaving our classes, they get like this huge bag of ready to fruit mushrooms and then they get a whole stack of Petri dishes and, you know, a whole kit and like they're leaving the class with everything they, that they need to grow mushrooms. And then two weeks later, we get all these pictures of people growing mushrooms and it's very satisfying. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Hooking people up seems like one of your hallmarks. I was recently reading through some of the Google reviews for fresh from the farm fungi products, and I saw numerous references to extra Petri dishes and value added that you bestowed upon your customers. Let's dive into your laboratory training and professional background for a bit. I understand that you were working full-time in a laboratory setting professionally and as a bona fide member of the corporatocracy for a number of years before striking out on your own as a micropreneur and opening up shop with your current operation. What type of laboratory training and background do you have? And when did you part ways with that commitment to transition into fresh from the farm fungi as your full-time hustle? 
when I'm bored, I'm just pouring plates. It's one of my, uh, my downtime activities, but I don't mind doing it because that's, you know, that was my background is I could pour 500 plates and I used to do it a lot. And now I can carry that to a whole nother community besides like, you know, when I used to work in the hospitals and the labs and that's, that's its own world. And I'm bringing that to the rest of the world. I got my degree at University of Buffalo as a medical technologist. So I used to work in clinical labs and hospitals. And, you know, I got to see a microbiology lab. I got to see a blood bank where I worked at a blood bank for a couple of years while I was in college. So I understood, you know, the grind and the flow, the workflow. And then um, right when I graduated college, my wife and I, we, uh, she was my girlfriend at the time. We took a road trip with a friend all the way across the country. And, you know, we, we explored everything in a, a little Jeep Wrangler and we camped out and we got to see the whole country and that opened up my eyes to, you know, a lot of opportunity. We fell in love with Colorado. So my wife, she works for Geico and she got really lucky and was able to transfer here to Denver. You know, that was, that was the footing to get us away from where I grew up, which is Buffalo, New York. And then in that process, I found this company called Allosource and Centennial, um, and they procure stem cells and, you know, they produce all of these um, products for surgery using, um, you know, donated tissue from people that donate their or- organs. So it's a, it's a tissue bank. I worked there for a couple of years. So that was a totally different experience. And I learned all about aseptic technique. We had to wear like the full space suits and it was very rigorous and sterile procedures. The, the whole entire facility was HEPA filters and positive pressure. And, you know, we would test the air quality for one particle, like very high standards. So I did that for a little while. And uh, my supervisor from that job moved out to California. So the the culture kind of changed a little. And I decided to move out of that industry. At that same time, that's when cannabis was legalized here in Denver. So I saw that opportunity. So um, I worked at one of the larger cultivators here in Denver. And I mean, I was probably number 12 employee. And now they're they're like 400 employees deep. But basically, my role was to do this um, really innovative process where we were tissue culturing plants for production. At that time, I started gathering, you know, different lab equipment. And I just was always just like, um, really enthusiastic about laboratory and plant tissue culture. And I'm a big gardener. So naturally, mushrooms kind of work their way in. Plant tissue culture is very similar to mushroom, you know, the, all the Petri plates and stuff like that. So I, I tried doing some button mushrooms at that time, um, just in my backyard as part of my garden. And, you know, it was a horrible failure. But I'm also, you know, one that doesn't like to to fail. So I just doubled down and, you know, I bought a bunch of mushroom cultures and started growing them. And uh, so that was probably five or six years ago now. So then once my uh, job was over with the plant cannabis producer, we bred over 85 different strains and kind of worked through their genetics. 
so um, they, you know, sadly let me go at, at the end of that project. And I could have stayed on to be like a, a cultivator, but I wanted to move on to bigger and better things. So I ended up joining forces with uh, a lab testing facility. So I was a supervisor at one of the laboratories that we tested um, cannabis products for contaminants um, and then yeast and mold, salmonella, E. coli, just um, to protect the consumer. So we were like, you know, the gatekeepers basically before it got to the shelf, it had to pass our quality control. And then we worked hand in hand with the CDPHE, which is the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. So they were the overseers and basically we just tested all this product before it hit the shelf. So I did that for a couple of years as well. And, you know, during that time, I was super grateful because it was another really young company that was, it was a startup company. So I got to see, you know, that company grow. So I got two really unique experiences where I was really early on and watched the company grow. And then it finally hit us a ceiling where, you know, I, I couldn't do any more work for them. So at that point I decided to um, do my own thing. So, you know, a couple months prior, I was, I was growing some mushrooms and um, I remember I grew some lion's mane mushrooms and we had so much that my wife and I were like, all right, well, we can't finish all this mushroom. So I just posted an ad on Craigslist and I was like, lion's mane mushroom, fresh, um, come pick it up. And I remember this guy, he rode his bike from North Lakewood, which is probably 20 minutes away. And he showed up at my house and he just grabbed the mushroom and ate it like an apple. And I was like, oh my God, like, don't do that. You're supposed to cook it. But at that moment, I realized like, wow, there's like a market for this. I love growing mushrooms. Let's, you know... I'm just going to make this happen. So I started off in like this tiny little four by four tent and slowly and surely I was just selling mushrooms to my friends and family for a while. And then um, Christina, the owner at the co-op, she reached out to me. Maybe she saw that Craigslist ad as well. And they were starting this uh, little grocery store and um, they wanted my mushrooms there. So that's what happened. And then, you know, I, probably a year later, I joined the Cherry Creek Farmers Market, and that's kind of when things really started taking off because I couldn't grow enough mushrooms. They were getting so popular. So that's kind of like how I weaseled my way into the situation, and I just got a lot of really lucky opportunities, and then slowly I knew that if I started my own business, like the ceiling would be endless, I guess. So the, the opportunity to keep growing is always there and that's kind of my passion is like innovation and just continuous growth and that's kind of a you know the story of how it all happened i'm smitten with your humility gary referring to your good fortune as a byproduct of luck one of my favorite quotes comes from the musician kenny loggins who i had the good fortune of working with at the san diego international film festival a few years ago he says that luck smells like sweat and that statement is quite resonant for me. A few different mycopreneurs that I've talked to have explained their success as a condition of luck. No doubt there is monumental levels of diligence and risk and perspicacity and the daily grind that presupposes the striking of good fortune in addition to luck. But yes, luck is a huge factor at play in many mycopreneurial breakthroughs and ventures. Before we wrap up today, I'm curious if there are any other projects on the horizon for you, Gary. 
I know you've got your hands full wearing all the hats at Fresh from the Farm Fungi, but it also seems like you're primed for some new undertakings with the expansion of your property you mentioned earlier, experimenting with wild and notoriously difficult to cultivate fungi, et cetera. What are you working on right now and what's on the horizon for Fresh from the Farm Fungi? Um, yeah, so like I said before with um, the outdoor project with the, the porcini, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, kind of like my super long-term vision with that is, you know, coupling my experience with the tissue culture with the wild mushrooms. And I think that there could be some kind of marriage there where, you know, my ultimate long-term dream is to like buy this plot of land and terraform it with perfectly cultivated plant tissue cultures with mushroom mycelium. And yeah, you know, that's, that's my super long-term dream. Um, there's going to be a lot of steps along the way. And as far as this year, we're going to be at Cherry Creek Farmer's Market again. Um, we're going to have some more cordyceps, hopefully. And then we're just going to keep keeping our customers happy. You know, a, a majority of our, our customers are just repeat people that really love mushrooms. And that means the most to me is like when I hand off that box of mushrooms and that person keeps coming back week after week, it, it just makes me feel, you know, satisfied and like I'm doing something good. So, so parting shot here, Gary, I'd love it if you could give us some insights into the guiding ethos or philosophy that underpins Fresh from the Farm Fungi as a business entity and as a cultivation outfit. And why I ask this is that with the explosion of interest in mushrooms and cultivation and related commerce over the last year or two, there's considerable debate and skepticism within the mushroom community over the positioning and the practices of some of these mushroom brands. Unscrupulous business practices, hoarding patents, looking at mushroom cultivation and related public and commercial interest as a vehicle for maximizing profits and for cashing in on the shroom boom, which anyone listening to the podcast knows is a term I hate. I've heard a number of different perspectives regarding the perceived failure of the cannabis industry, where a lot of big players got involved and started trying to use pesticides, started using pesticides and maximizing THC above all else, etc. These monolithic brands were established and they violated the spirit of what a lot of people in the cannabis community wanted, which is access and people before profits and holistic closed loop community supply chains and benefits, etc. A number of mushroom cultivators that I know and have spoken with have expressed concerns about the potential for the mushroom industry and the impending legalization of psychedelic mushrooms going the same way as the cannabis industry. What are some sentiments you can share regarding the guiding ethos for your cultivation process and your business? Yeah, yeah, so looking back on the cannabis industry here in Denver, I think one of the main failures in that realm is that there was this dissonance between the business owners and the consumer. So I kind of witnessed being on all three sides and being a part of, you know, the, the regulatory side of things. And what ended up happening is that, you know, the rules were set in place and there was this constant battle between the regulators and the producers. And eventually, you know, these producers got super big like what you described and instead of you know having the best interest of the you know the consumer in mind they would kind of bend these rules in favor of 
the the cultivator. Now, that being said, we're five or six years later and all the dust has settled. But early on, I think that if there was more public input in all these like regulations, for instance, the, the amount of pesticides that could be in some of these products, you know, at first it was pretty high and then slowly and slowly now it's almost nothing, which is great. But that being said, you know, we've, we've gone that path with cannabis. Um, it's, you know, a medicine, it's a plant medicine, but it should be, it, as we move forward with the mushroom industry, especially, I think that having the consumer first, when, you know, when you're creating these regulations, um, and um, I've given talks on this before. So for example, mycotoxins, which are this really inert compound, it's, it's almost invisible, but in, in the process of growing mushrooms, there's a pretty high risk for these mycotoxins to make it into the fruiting bodies. And I believe that the highest standards have to be set in place, especially, you know, psilocybin is on the forefront. And there's, a, I mean, right now in, in Colorado, it's decriminalized in Denver, which means that people can cultivate it. It's the lowest priority for police officers. You can take it, you know, you can't sell it. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, but I think that there has to be that regulator in the middle between the producer and the consumer so that the consumer will know, all right, I'm getting a safe product. This doesn't have mycotoxins. This doesn't have salmonella E. coli. And if that means, you know, going medical first, or if it, I don't know if it will ever be a recreational product, it's very serious and you know, it's a very um, personal experience. So I think that the importance of a regulator between the consumer and the producer is so much more important with mushrooms because of, you know, safety aspects. So that's what I'm promoting. I think that the cannabis industry failed early, but over the course of the past few years, it's getting more it's, it's becoming safer for the consumer. The prices are coming down. It just took too long, in my opinion. And I think that if we're looking forward, you know, we can do a, a much better job at protecting people who are, who are taking these products and making sure they're safe, they don't have contamination, you know, and they're, they're being produced, you know, in a, in a clean way too. Like, that's another reason why we can go, come back for full circle to the hemp industry. You know, hemp is different from cannabis. It's a, it's a textile as well. So there's so much waste product that it shouldn't be thrown out. It should be utilized. And that's where mushrooms come in. So it's all going to come together at some point. It's just a matter of time. Gary Hefferly of Fresh from the Farm Fungi. Thank you so much for coming on the Micropreneur podcast and talking shop. I really appreciate it. I'm thrilled with our discourse and you're welcome on the podcast anytime you like. I'm looking forward to placing an order from your online store and I would implore any interested parties who may be listening to do the same. Cheers, Gary. Yeah, thanks for having me and on such short notice and you know, it was a pleasure meeting you for the first time too. Like that's super cool and you know, I really enjoyed this talk and I hope that, you know, it gets the word out there and, you know, there's got to be more of this. It's, it's just bound to happen. <laughs> Thank you.
There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up. At Mycopreneur Podcast, that's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Mycopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Mycopreneur podcast. And while you're here, go ahead and subscribe. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.